Good morning, and welcome to On Target, a radio ministry of Village Bible Church in Hot Springs Village. We are located near the Coronado Center at 100 Ponderosa Way. Our Sunday morning service starts at 9.15 a.m. We hope you will enjoy and benefit from the sermon you will hear this morning. Now sit back and relax as you listen to a message by Senior Pastor Dr. Jason Lancaster. In 2006, our fourth child was born. That's my son, Roman. And our family was complete, and we started getting rid of all of our baby junk. We got rid of all the baby Einstein videos. We got rid of our baby stroller. We got rid of random baby swings, baby clothes. We were free, and revival was happening in our house. We were done with kids. It was awesome. All right? And that was 2006. And then 2008, my wife and I were just completely undone. We were rattled in a way we never expected to be rattled. It was brought to our attention the millions, and I said millions, of children around the world who were orphans. And if that didn't shake us enough, it was brought to our attention the hundreds of thousands of children in foster care in America. And God was doing a work in us, stirring us up. And 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 we call it conviction, but it's almost like he was rattling us and he was squeezing us with the great need in the world combined with the heart of God. And it was stirring us up. And now, several years later, our four kids have now become seven. God does that kind of stuff, right? And I, I do wonder as you look at your own life and examine your own heart and you look out into the world, you you see a variety of needs. Something, there is a need that needs to be met and you know the heart of God and you are in the middle and it's like kind of squeezing you. God is convicting you and and you have to do something. And it it might not be, you know, vulnerable kids. It may be uh, lonely widows. It may be drug and and alcohol addicted, right? It, It may be neglected vets. It may be Children, babies who are being aborted. It may be the poor, the abused. It can be a variety of unreached people groups around the world. It could be your neighbor who's neglected and needs Jesus, or people on the golf course that need Jesus, people all over the village that need Jesus. So you see the need, it's out there. You know God's heart, and somehow you're in the middle and you've got to do something or not. You, you do realize you can let that moment pass, right? Like how many times has God like convicted you, squeezed you, rattled you, and you didn't do anything? You just moved on to whatever you were doing because comfort was a lot more comfortable. Trust me, four kids is a lot easier than seven. Guarantee you. But when God starts doing a work in you and he starts doing a work in crushing you and convicting you in good ways, you have the opportunity to respond in such a way 
that brings him glory in ways that you never expected. And what I'm praying is that God does that in your heart this morning. As I introduce you to a man who was minding his own business, who was comfortable, and he was living in luxury, and God squeezed him and convicted him. And his name is Nehemiah. Let's look at the book of Nehemiah this morning. Now, when you come to the Old Testament, how many of you often come in the Old Testament and you feel disoriented because your history, you're like, where are we at historically? Like Nehemiah, when did that happen? Is Nehemiah, is he like a contemporary of Moses maybe, of Abraham? Like where does he play, you know? And so I'm going to give you a timeline to help you get your bearings straight of the overall Bible story, okay? So perhaps you'll find this helpful, all right? So let's do a little timeline here. Now we're pretty good. We know the first one, God created the world. And then afterwards was Noah, several years later. And several years later, we got Abraham. Then we have Israel and the exile going to Egypt. Then the exodus out of Egypt. Now I'm skipping a lot, by the way. And then you have King David. And then the kingdom splits in northern. Uh, and then you have, it, the northern was called Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah. Then the northern kingdom basically gets destroyed in their exile. And Judah and their disobedience is exiled to Babylon. In Babylon, you have the stories of Daniel, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But then you have the exodus out of Babylon back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding. And you have the 400 years of biblical silence. I mean, God is not silent. You still have his word, but the biblical silence there. And then you have Jesus Christ. So where we're going to focus today is on that part, that portion that says Exodus out of Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild. That's the history portion we're looking at today. And I want to kind of, a little bit more history here than we'll be done here. All right, so this Exodus out of Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild, we have basically three returns, all right? Let me show you these three returns. Number one, return number one, Zerubbabel led the rebuilding of the temple, Zerubbabel, at the command of the Persian leader, Cyrus, led the people in the first return to rebuild the temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it was good at first, but I don't know if you know this, but the returnees, they kinda, the returnees quit after opposition from a variety of the surrounding enemies. And this brings us to return number two of Ezra. Ezra led the spiritual rebuilding of the people, kind of got the work restarted again on the temple. Now, the return number three is not really a massive return. It's basically Nehemiah is coming to get the work started on rebuilding of the walls. All right, you got that? Some have returned from Babylon, not a lot, to Jerusalem and the surrounding area to repopulate the land. The temple has been rebuilt kind of not like it's glory days, right? Remember, they were all crying. They're like, oh, this is, this is not the way it was. But their walls are still down, which means they're vulnerable to enemies. And so the place where God is supposed to get the max amount of glory as people stream into it is in um, shambles. Nehemiah comes on the scene, verse 1. Nehemiah 1, 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital. 
It's around November, December, and Nehemiah is in Susa, which would be the winter residence of King Artaxerxes, who has been reigning at this point for about 20 years. And now Nehemiah is with the Persian king because he works as a cupbearer. If you look down at verse 11, jump to verse 11, Nehemiah says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. Now you're going, what's a cupbearer? Well, basically all the food and drink pass through him for testing before they go on to the king. And if he doesn't die, then it's okay for the king to eat and drink that. Anybody want to sign up for that job? Right. But, but it's not a bad job. It really isn't because many people think that Nehemiah is more like a royal official. It's pretty big deal. He lives in the palace, likely with his family. It's comfortable. I mean, you're in a palace and he's in the summer palace at this point. He has a comfortable life, but he's still an outsider because he's a Jew. And he's about to hear some news that it's going to squeeze him. Look at verse 2. While I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them about the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. He's like, tell me about the homeland. And he receives this report of how things are going back in the city of Jerusalem. He wants to know how did the Jews faring that returned, and the report is not good. Verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and disgrace, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. So the Jews in the homeland are in great distress and disgrace. Their walls are down. The gates have been burned up. Perhaps this is reference to the the first invasion and the destruction by the Babylonians many years earlier, or maybe the rebuilding started and the enemies of God tore it down. Either way, God's people are in distress. Now, there's no way I'm going to make this absolute comparison, but I would say in many ways, God's people, the church in America, is in distress big time. I mean, you wouldn't know it by by looking around here. A lot of us are gathering back together. We're worshiping. It's exciting. But just just know that, that a lot of churches in America have been shut down and are still shut down over over a year now. A lot of people have disappeared, and there's a lot of division in the church. And some churches didn't survive this last year. They shut down. Some have merged. There's been a lot of, of fighting over politics, race, mask, shots, yes or no. I mean, a lot of, lot of division. And if you care about the church, which Jesus does, your heart is to be for the body of Christ. Not just our body of Christ, but the body of Christ around the world. And it's, it's, it's in a tough place right now. So Nehemiah gets that news. What's he going to do? Verse four. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is rattled. He's squeezed. He's convicted. So Jerusalem, do you know this? Jerusalem is supposed to be this light 
to the world, bringing glory to God. And now it's this ransacked joke, some backwater trash heap. The nations are supposed to stream to it and worship, and now the nations are mocking it. And he gets this report. He shook. What's he going to do now? What's his next move now? You got the news? What are you going to do? Sometime during the week, I, I, I go on this app on my phone. It's called Clubhouse. And one of the, there's a variety of rooms you can call into and discuss certain things. And one of the rooms in this Clubhouse app is called the Pitch Room. The Pitch Room. And the Pitch Room is where you have uh, entrepreneurs who are trying to start their own businesses, and they're, they're pitching their business to investors. Now, what they have to do, they have to talk about, here is a need in the world or a problem, and here is how my company is going to address that need or problem. And then the investors give them advice or maybe some money. So I can imagine Nehemiah coming into this pitch room, and he's coming in and saying, yes, I have this luxurious job aside from the fact I could die at any time, but I have this great job and my people in Jerusalem, their walls are down. So that's the problem. And the solution is, I have no idea. So Nehemiah would exit that room and he would make his pitch to God. So he's bringing his pitch to God. God, you see the mess. I know your heart. What do I do? And look at the way he begins. He begins with mourning, fasting, and praying. Mourning, fasting, and praying. When you see a need in the world and you feel convicted to do something about it, don't rush ahead, pull back, and pray. Mourn over the brokenness in the world. Mourn over your lack of care and concern. Maybe even fast. Because we often, as go-getters, see a need. We want to just go and get it. We need to pull back and pray and seek the face of God. And that's what Nehemiah does. And in this prayer, he's going to focus on the character of God. He's going to confess the sins of God's people, and then he's going to talk about the blessing of God's people. So let's just kind of go through this prayer. It's a snapshot. It's kind of a, a great way to pray. First, by focusing on the character of God. Look at verse 5. I said, please, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps the covenant and faithfulness for those who love him and keep his commandments... He starts by looking at the character of God, specifically his covenant-keeping faithfulness. And what he's doing here, he is appealing to God's promise and what he has already committed to doing. He has promised to keep his covenant faithfulness to those who love him, you see it there, and keep his commandments. Those who walk humbly with the Lord in obedience will get the favor of God. And this character of God's covenant faithfulness stands today as well. Those who walk in humility, those who walk in obedience and faithfulness will be targets of his blessing. 
I mean, it doesn't mean that we avoid pain. doesn't mean we avoid suffering or even persecutions. But we are confident that if we're walking with the Lord, trust him by faith, not perfection, God is doing a good work in us now, and he's going to bring us safely home with him forever. Now, I want you to know, my brothers and sisters, you may think that as you age, you're getting closer and closer to death. But the reality is, as you age, you're getting closer and closer to life eternal. Now, we have life eternal now. I get that. But life eternal forever. And so when my daughter, Mary, turned 11 this past um, week, she's like, I'm getting closer to life. <laughs> to life eternal, right? That's what we got to look at it. And so, because God is, he's faithful in his character and his promise keeping, right? And so he's doing a work in us now and on into eternity. So we recognize he's faithful, but then we got to pull back and go, you're faithful, me, not so much. Look at verse six and seven. Look at him confessing. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Now, his confession is both personal and corporate. He is confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have committed. And it says, I and my father's house have sinned. <laughs> no one confesses sins like this anymore. No one. What do we do? What do we do in counseling? What do we do when we talk about all the problems we have? We often blame our parents. My parents, the things they did have messed me up so bad. It's all their fault. Or how about saying, you know what? My parents, they are messed up. Let's just go ahead and agree, okay? That's what Nehemiah's doing. Ancestors, messed up. So am I. I'm tainted with whatever they passed down to me, and I'm just as guilty as them. He is confessing the wrongdoing of people who are already dead, and he's also confessing that he's part of that wrongdoing. If we're constantly pointing the finger at our parents or other people, we're never going to own our own sin. And Nehemiah is like, I got this. I'm responsible as well. And he continues on. Faithfulness of God, confession of God's people. Now the blessing. Look what he says about the blessing. Verse 8. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. Right here, Nehemiah is given the classic two ways to live. He echoes the words of Moses. If the people disobey, they will be scattered. And where were they scattered to? They were scattered to Babylon. They have been exiled. But the flip side is the blessing. If you return to the Lord, then they'll be gathered and restored to the land. So he's appealing to the Lord to have mercy on his people based upon his covenant faithfulness, 
seeing their confession, bringing them back to the land. He is asking God, do something. Your people are in disgrace. You're not getting the glory. God, I'm asking you to act. Now finish it up. Verse 10 and 11. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Think about what he's saying here. He's praying. Oh, by the way, who is this guy? Is Nehemiah, let's just get this. Is Nehemiah uh, like one of those priest guys? No. Is he like one of those Levites? They're, no, 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 no. No, he's not, he's not a religious guy, right? He's just a guy. He doesn't have a seminary degree, right? Just, just a guy. And you may think, I'm just a guy. I'm just a girl. God's using and stirring up a variety of people, not just those who are official religious types, stirring up Nehemiah, and he's asking God to hear his prayer and to give him success. More on that next week. But I want to, before we see what happens next week, and you can cheat and look ahead. You can always read your Bible before next week if you want to. His whole goal, do you realize his whole goal is that the people of God would give glory to God. He wants God's name and fame to resound from God's people. He says specifically, he says, make me successful so that your servants who delight to revere your name may worship you as a blessed people back in the promised land. He's like, we love you, Lord. We worship you. And we want your name and your fame to spread. I'm going to say this three times. His concern is not for comfort, but for the glory of God. His concern is not for comfort, but for the glory of God. His concern is not for comfort, but for the glory of God. And I am wondering, where is God stirring you to step out of that which is comfortable in order to serve him and to bring him glory? You look out at the world, you see hurting people, you see a need, you know God's heart, you're in the middle, what are you going to do? Will you let that time pass? Will you let that conviction pass? Will you let the still small voice that we often say push it away? You know the need of the world. You see God's heart. And we're not talking about every single need in the world. There is a specific need in the world for you to address. I don't know what it is. Different for you, different for me. There is something that's going on and you look out and it is messed up. And you're thinking, I'm sick and tired of seeing that. I'm going to do something. Or not. Do you realize how the or not comes about? It's because... We're just comfortable. We are comfortable people. And when we know when we get involved in people's lives, it's going to be messy. Have you ever had a heart and a burden for someone, maybe you're a family member or someone in the community who has some type of addiction? And you go, oh, they have a, 
They're addicted to whatever that is, a drug, alcohol, whatever. And you know you need to attempt to help them, but you know that when you start moving that direction, you may get your head lopped off, right? Because you know, it's like, that, that's something I don't want to mess with. A need, God's heart, what are you going to do? Over and over and over again, just look out in the world. There are needs all over. What are you going to do? And so we're being squeezed, rattled, convicted, let it pass, or go before the Lord in prayer and say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? I want to confess my sin. I want to confess how I've not cared. You have perfect character. What do you want me to do? Don't let it pass. Think about your life right now. Think about your history right now. What's your need? Well, you are a sinner. I am a sinner. What's God's heart? God's heart is to reconcile sinners to himself. Who's in the middle? Jesus. And Jesus did not see the need and the holiness of God and say, well, I'm just going to let this moment pass. But in his perfect obedience, Jesus came to this earth and seeing our need, took the wrath of the Father in our place on the cross. And he was buried and rose again and said, our need in God's heart through repentance and faith in Jesus, just like that, we can be reconciled. And it's that heart of the Lord which empowers us to go and serve others and meet needs according to his grace. And I think daily we need to come back to see our need for grace, our need for the cross, our need for Jesus. And there are special times that we gather together and do that each week. And there are more special times we gather together to take something called the Lord's Supper. Because in the Lord's Supper, we see our need and God's heart coming together in Jesus. And we're about to take that meal. And the way we do it at our church, at least for the last several months, is you take it to where you're sitting right there. There should be a cup in front of you, a very small one. And if you are a believer, you don't have to be a member of this church, but if you're a believer in Jesus, you can take this meal. And before we take this meal, we want to examine ourselves, not, not flog ourselves for all our sins, but examine ourselves and say, Lord, you are the sin bearer. And confess sin and go to him. And we're even doing this corporately where we're confessing our own sins, maybe the, the sins of the church or the sins of our forefathers. And we're examining ourselves and finding forgiveness for us in Jesus. So before we take uh, the bread, which we'll take first, let's, let's go to a time of prayer. Lord, we examine ourselves now and we know that your body was broken for us. Our sin on you. Your grace given to us. 
your righteousness given to us. We confess our sins. We confess our sins of what we would call our forefathers that have attainted us that we are accountable to you for. And we ask for grace and forgiveness. So right now where you're at, go ahead and take the bread. Remember, the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. And in the same way, we take the cup. And as we take the cup, we remember the blood of Christ spilled for us. And we ask that our hearts would fall upon your grace to know that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. And it's that work of life and death and resurrection we remember now. Take and drink. And the Bible says that we do this. And we're proclaiming the Lord until he returns. And as the disciples in the upper room sung a hymn and departed, we are going to sing. And as we sing, we are going to worship. Remember the grace given to us. But as you sing, I also want you to realize, don't let this moment pass. God has a work for you to do in engaging the needs and the suffering of this world in a way that brings him glory. We hope you enjoyed this message. It was preached recently at Village Bible Church. You can hear this message or let others know about it by visiting our website at vbchsv.org or call us at 922-0404. Meanwhile, have a blessed day as you walk along the way, guided by God's Word.